Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. All right, so Tim, this week you spoke with Stacey Stewart, who is the U.S. Chief Marketplace Officer at UM Worldwide. And I would love to know what her thoughts are on the state of the ad market right now. Yep, same. That was why I wanted her to come on the show. She's um, just a great person to talk to about the ad market in general, and that is what we spent... Uh, pretty much the entire conversation talking about. So we talk about, you know, how there's been the slowdown this year in ad spending. And she talks about, you know, in Q3 and then really, you know, Q4, now that we're in Q4, how there have been, you know, some clients that have pulled back budgets. But like, really, the thing is just, you know, advertisers moving money towards more flexible options. And so like, We've seen with this year's upfront orders on the you know TV side that some of those budgets got pulled back um, because advertisers just didn't want to be committed. Um, they'd rather you know be spending money on digital platforms. You know, for example, because in digital um, you have more flexibility with you can say you're gonna you know run a campaign, but you have more options to pull that money back, cancel the campaign if. The economy uh, goes further down, which um, unfortunately it seems to be doing, like with inflation continuing to rise. So we talk a lot about just, you know, what the um, advertising slowdown has looked like from the buy side perspective. Got it. So sounds like she is in the camp that next year will also be a little wonky maybe for advertising budgets. Uh, I, I'm curious what she had to say about um, like what she's hearing from from clients or advertisers about the outlook for 2023. Um, did she get into kind of her predictions for that or how the actions taking place right now or, you know, maybe trying to mitigate some of the impact that could happen next year? Yeah, I mean, 2023 uh, for the buy side, just like the sell side, is fairly hazy at this point. Um, For example, you know, right now is the budget planning season for 2023 for advertisers and agencies. And those conversations usually start around like early September. And budgets are generally wrapped up by like, you know, around this time or like by November. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was saying that the process is a bit more prolonged this year and that, you know, budgets aren't going to be finalized in the usual time frame just because there is still so much uncertainty in the economy and with how things are going to go early next year. Got it. All right. Well, I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. Stacey Stewart, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, Stacey, I really wanted to have you on the show because I, I really wanted to talk to someone about the ad market at the moment. I'm talking to a lot of folks about the ad market, especially on the sales side of things. Um, and you, as U.S. Chief Marketplace Officer at UM Worldwide, have a pretty damn good view of it from the buy side perspective. So I'll kind of start there with the very easy, straightforward question. We're a few weeks into the fourth quarter. How's the ad market looking right now? 
I think we haven't seen a ton of cuts per se, but we are seeing clients be very conservative, potentially shifting to channels that have increased flexibility where they can cancel things if they need to. Um, There's definitely a shift to more immediate results, kind of lower funnel metrics, if you will, focusing it on revenue in the short term versus brand building. So we're seeing some shifts, but not necessarily dramatic cuts. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about that one because like I was, you know, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, talking to some TV network executives, some agency executives about the upfront. And, you know, the thing I was hearing is, oh, clients are cutting their upfront orders from what the initial commitments were and often in the range of like 10 to 20 percent. Definitely. And I think, and don't get me wrong when I say there hasn't been many cuts, there's still cuts. Um, they just haven't been as dramatic as I think we had all feared. But what they are cutting, and you see that in a linear TV, is that is firm money. So going to order, they're going to hold that back because they want to keep that flexibility. So that's where we saw a lot of the cuts. It's not that the dollars have necessarily gone away completely in some cases. Some of them are sitting there or shifted to more either flexible or lower funnel opportunities. Okay. So so that money isn't necessarily, or at least maybe in all cases, just brand saying, I don't want to spend all of that money X percent. I'm just going to take and hold internally. Mm-hmm. Some of that is getting reallocated. Some of that will get reallocated. Some of it will get cut. But we have, like I said, we haven't seen as much of it get cut out of the gate as we thought we would. Got it. To what extent do you attribute that to like you all had just expected to see it more than maybe you are? I think there's some of that. I think the economy is certainly filled with a lot of unknowns at this stage. I think we're still predicting it's going to get some additional cuts. Some of that money won't come back in. Um, But no, I think you're totally right. I think some of us expected it to be doom and gloom and it's not necessarily doom and gloom. It's more little doom little foggy (laughs) (laughs) although it does seem like little doom now gloom oh god let's talk about first quarter we don't have to get to first quarter 2023 (laughs) just yet we will get there but like with these it feels like so start of the year talking to people buy and sell side in january is just like oh 2022 is gonna be great 2020-21 or 2021 was like this big bounce back year. It just, you know, it's all roses looking forward. Late February, early March, I talked to like the first media executive who's just like, uh, I don't know. I don't like the supply chain stuff, Russia, Ukraine, and, you know, just inflation and the potential for interest rates to go up. Cause I think it was January when it started getting reported that mm-hmm. the Fed was gonna raise interest rates. That all happens. April, May, it seems like, oh no, something something not good is potentially happening. Started coloring into a lot of the conversations in the market, the early upfront talks. And then it feels like second half of May, June, mm-hmm. things kind of not go off a cliff, but at least start rolling down the hillside. And then we had our DJ publishing summit in late September. A lot of the publishing executives who were there are just like, Q3 has been god-awful. Like, what happened in Q3 from the buy-side perspective? I think that's when we saw people start to be more conservative. Um, That was the time where 
we were finalizing the upfronts. We saw people start to cut back some of their upfronts then. Um, we saw people really want to look at alternatives to their plan that focused on more lower funnel um, with the concern of driving revenue quickly. Um, I think a lot of it was the gas prices, um, just really adding, it's terrible to say, fuel to the fire. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I love puns. That was great. <laughs> sorry. I was like, don't say it. <laughs> but then you have to, like when you know you have a pun sitting right there, it's I like, know. oh God, I got to steer into this, even though I don't want to look away. Like uh, okay. Um, I think that's really what pushed everyone to really become conservative. And was that across the board or did you see, like, it's been weird, like, you know, listening to a bunch of the third quarter earnings calls, hearing some mixed signals of, oh, CPG was starting to come back in Q2 and like retail has been tough, but, you know, retail in some respects is coming back. In some respects, tech is strong. In other respects, like tech, not strong, especially not consumer electronics. And, you know, some cases, oh, supply chain issues are a problem. In other cases, retailers have too much supply and they're going to need to you know, run ads in order to get that stuff off their shelves by the end of the year. It didn't feel as, not that there was anything really that tidy about spring 2020, but there was a bit of a tidiness to, well, theatrical entertainment advertisers are out, but streaming service advertisers are here. This time around, like Q3, even going into Q4, I haven't had a, it feels like there's just contradiction everywhere. There is a lot of contradiction. And I think that's where everything is so reactionary right now. And everyone's just being, I think, conservative that a lot of that up and down of those variables are being caused by how conservative or how risk adverse is that particular company or organization. I think everyone does have still supply chain issues in some way, shape, or form. Package material costs to make products are still high, which is driving some of that that challenge. Um, but you're right; like there are over abundance of supplies in some areas, and then no supply in others. There isn't that consistency that we saw for the past two years, where it was like one extreme and then the other extreme. It's it is very case by case. Um, there, you know, there's some consistent things with, in some categories, like real estate, um, with the interest rates being high, that's fairly soft. You know, travel is still up because it was so down for so long. Um, entertainment's fairly okay at this stage. Um, it's come back um, between the streaming and the studio movies. So that's not we're not seeing as huge of issues there. Autos are still being plagued with a lot of um, supply issues with different right. parts. Um, and that's something that's been consistent. But packaged goods, I think it depends on what kind of product you have um, quite dramatically. Like I think that's the biggest category where we see the most diverse answers to things. Yeah. No, it was wild to me. I had a dinner with the CMO of a large CBG company in June. And I was asking them, because this was right around when things started, you know, to seem like they were flipping like 
what are their contingencies to what are the extent are they having to adjust budgets and this person was saying no we were really conservative heading into 2022 because we didn't know how things were going to go and they were so they own a good number of food brands and, and they were saying it's weird because at the one time you know on the one hand if people are trying to manage budgets and they're not eating out as much and they're doing a lot of grocery shopping that's going to be beneficial for us but we also sell a lot of wheat products. And do you happen to know who the biggest provider or supplier of wheat is or like where the biggest supply of wheat is? It's Russia. And I, I didn't know that. So I was like, oh my God, that sounds rough. But even them, it was almost like contradictions inside of you know this brand, which was really interesting to me. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that. And so you mentioned, you know, it's kind of that firm money or the firm commitments is where the money's getting moved away from towards more flexibility. Is that just as straightforward as money's getting moved out of traditional TV upfront commitments and it's getting put towards digital platforms and, you know, programmatic because it's easy to, you know, dollar in and take a dollar out at the same time? It is. It, it, it does come down to that to some degree. And a lot of that is based on the two things, the flexibility that's available in those areas and the ability to focus on those lower funder metrics. And with that, because there was also a lot made um, in the second quarter of like Meta, for example, having a tough second quarter, which was kind of surprising because, you know, Meta is one of those, like you think of, you know, Facebook right alongside Google search as more direct response oriented, definitely more flexibility when it comes to dollars. And so like, how are things playing out, especially kind of among that triopoly of Google, Meta, Amazon right now? I think Amazon definitely has diversified their offerings between Twitch, Thursday Night Football, their video offerings. I think they've been doing fairly okay, given they have a diverse set of offerings. They also have all the retail, the search, Um, so I think they're diversified enough that they haven't seen a huge hit, um, or any significant change. I think there's some growth opportunities there, particularly with Thursday night football. Um, and then I think Google's been fairly consistent. Um, I think YouTube had a huge burst on the scene a few years ago. And now I think there's a lot more. This year is like what this year? Uh, but I think there's more competition for those dollars now, right? So TikTok has certainly given YouTube a run for its money um, as it's come on board, targeting those younger consumers um, and, and definitely with a lot of time spent. So there's some competition there, but I think they're still ultimately fine. YouTube is a key part of most of our buys. Facebook Similar in that vein is there's a lot more competition in that social space these days. Um, And people spend a lot of money on Facebook. Their ROI is very good, but it's the measurement is siloed. Um, And if I can diversify that, that's, there's an appeal to diversify that from a measurement perspective. Yeah. And Meta's also talked a lot about how Apple's anti-tracking changes have heard it snaps talked to you know a bit about that as well but you know it's it's one thing for you know meta be to be saying hey it's you know we're doing what we can on the sales side of things it's really apple that's screwing us but 
from the buyer perspective, how much of an impact has Apple's change had on the dollars going to matter, you know, the performance or the, I guess maybe it's more specifically the ability to gauge the performance of those dollars? I think we haven't seen a significant impact yet. I think it's going to grow. I think that's where we're going to see a lot of shift in as cookies continue to deprecate and go away. We're going to see a lot of different shifts since then based off of what we can measure and track um, and how clients adapt to that changing landscape. Not to make too much of an aside, but as you mentioned, you know, as cookies go away, what's your confidence at this point in the third party cookie going away, given that Google's postponed it twice now? I think cookies are going away. They're declining the availability of cookies, no matter what Google does or doesn't do. Like the, we need to lessen our reliance on cookies with or without Google's decision. They're inevitably going to get there because of all the privacy laws and those changing. Like it's going to have to get there. I don't think we can sit around and wait for Google to pull the plug. Um, We're all chasing a much smaller pool of cookies than we used to be chasing. So if you don't lessen your reliance on those now, you're going to continue to get into a hole. Okay. And are clients actually taking steps to not only like test out cookie alternatives or get, you know, learn what data clean rooms are, what, you know, what the different providers are, but actually like meaningfully reallocate dollars towards cookie-less options? Because, you know, hearing from publishers, and this has been their story for two years now, the buy side just isn't moving quickly, really, you know, at all in their minds. I think some clients are further along than others. I think particularly ones with first-party data and having a good base of first-party data in a better position. No, we're not fundamentally doing enough to test. I think we're doing testing, um, but I think we need to move past testing into more action items um, soon. (laughs) What what will that take to move from that testing into action items? And, And also, what do you mean by action items? I think we need to start knowing what's working and what's not working. So I think we need to start taking some of those tests and making them more a real part of the plan um, and less test. Um, Leaning into the tactics that we find that work that are less cookie dependent um, is kind of what I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah. Although I think it, I imagine it's can be hard to figure out how many tactics aren't actually cookie dependent? Because I feel like that's something I hear more and more. It's like, well, we want to try this thing or do this thing, but you know, third-party cookies is actually still a pretty big part of this supposedly cookie-less option. There are, and that's it's kind of a big web to unweave, if you will, because there's the cookies you may use, there's the cookies the you know, platforms are using, there's there's cookies. There's so many cookies and weaving through that is it's, a, it's it takes a lot. And that's understanding the complexity of that and making a plan is important. And then you're going to have to iterate along the way, kind of learn and make pivots. Um, but if we're not starting now, we're going to be behind. Right. Yeah. Cause it also feels like there's an urgency to like, especially from the, the measurement front to establish the baselines while the third-party cookie is still available so that you have an understanding when the third-party cookie is gone of like, what are your baselines for 
whether it's UID you know, 2.0 or you know, live ramps ID or you know, whatever identifier you, may, you want to throw in there. You do. And that's where you have to have, I think most clients have a testing strategy. How quickly they're testing is probably more the challenge. I think they all have that roadmap. They're probably just a little bit behind on the roadmap, quite honestly. But you do have to create some of those benchmarks and understand the implications now. And then, I mean, testing, it's not like these tests are free, or at least I don't know that they're free yet. I, I know on the measurement side, there's more freebies being thrown around. We can have that conversation. But with the testing required of these different cookie list options, does that get more challenged when clients are pulling money back from the market? And so it's just like the dollars that they have, how willing how willing are they to invest in testing right now compared to how much they may need to be investing? I think they're a little hesitant. I think every dollar, there's a lot of eyes on every dollar right now. And there needs to be an increased justification for continuing to invest. Um, but again, I think it varies by client, by category on how invested they are in figuring this out. Um, and I think we're seeing, again, those clients with the first party data are a little more leaned in than clients with third party data that are heavily reliant. Okay. And do you find any of the media companies or tech platforms are somehow using cookie list options as a way to offer some sort of, you know, discounts or offset testing costs for the, you know, brand clients of, you know, hey, if you commit to spend X, you know, dollars, we'll throw in, you know, a test of our ID solution or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing with TransUnion or Experian. I haven't seen a ton of that. I'm sure it exists. I haven't seen it in any mass scale Got it. or anything Would you... significant want to see that or is would you look that gift horse in the mouth i think in certain cases yes i would love to see that i think we've done some partnerships where we've learned we've done some learnings with people um and i think those are always beneficial to both sides so if we can make that work i think it's ideal and it's a win-win for everybody we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back the 2023 budget planning process like that the what that kick starts like around labor day and goes to it's supposed to be a wrapping up around now is that the right timeline <laughs> yeah, about that it's a little behind okay how much behind is a little it's pretty behind <laughs> like is, is uh, are you already like changing up your christmas break plans no i haven't changed my christmas break plans but we are really talking 2023 now um, with a lot of clients, I think we didn't, some stuck to the normal timeline. I think there's just been a lot more revisions and changes um, than normal earlier. Um, so I think conversations are just really getting more real now, um, which we would have liked that to be about a month ago. Got it. What are the most common types of revisions, changes you're seeing? Just different budget levels. And then I think it's one factor. And then also, upper funnel versus lower funnel of where they want to focus their spend. Got it. The first one, different budget levels. Is that just budgets getting cut down or different makeups of budgets? Both. Um, quite honestly, both. I think budgets being cut down, planning for worst case scenario and what does that look like versus, you know, what they're currently expecting. They're 
slightly more optimistic version, but there's a little bit of worst case scenario planning going on also. Okay. And is there any idea on like when that worst case scenario would be? Not really, okay. unfortunately. And I think, again, I think that's going to vary a lot by category. It's going to vary a lot by specific accounts. Um, and just a lot of, I think the need for flexibility is going to continue. And I think that will drive a lot of the decisioning. The more flexibility you have, I think the more your dollars will stay fairly consistent. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was curious, like with the budget planning process of how much of that is, well, here's how much we think we can spend next year. And then it's upside from there versus here's the max we're going to be willing to spend f- next year. And it's going to be, you know, cuts from there. And that's, I think a lot of teams are looking at it from both angles right now of if this is my bare minimum, worst case scenario, what does a plan look like? If this is what I really think it's going to be, what does that look like? Got it. Are there any surprises for you there in terms of where that money is getting earmarked for at this point or like who the kind of initial recipients would be? No real... No, no surprises that are really big. I think, again, leaning a little bit of leaning more into channels that have flexibility. Got it. Okay. That f- flexibility. Other than that. Yeah. Like, flexibility yeah. is like the theme. <laughs> Which has been for, what, two and a half years now? Exactly. Since COVID started, that's all we talk about. Is there any difference to it at this, like, you know, talking flexibility in spring 2020, it was basically... I don't want money locked up in upfront commitments. I want as much as possible to have, you know, IAB, you know, the digital, you know, 14 days, you know, 100% out kind of option. Roku comes along and says, what if we give you two days out 100%, which I think everyone was pretty stoked on, but I think they may have attached some things to that that made it, you know, not quite as um, straightforward of a yes, please. But flexibility in October 2022, how does that manifest? Like, what what does flexibility look like right now? It's not that dissimilar, quite honestly. I think it it looks very much the same as that. I think there's just a little more rigor probably behind it. I think going into 2020, it was very reactionary. Whereas now, I think a lot of it becomes a conversation between investing in brand, investing in short-term sales, the flexibility that some of that short-term sales allows is good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversations on in a recession, you should continue to spend against, continue spending, not cut back. And there's a lot of those conversations going on right now of really wanting clients to not pull back. Um, so shifting to some of that flexibility to make everyone c- more comfortable is is part of that conversation. Okay. And it's interesting because like talking to publishers who come from the digital world, they're just like, this is nothing new for us. Like, yeah. I mean, there's the newer thing of they're saying that more money is getting spent in quarter than previously or yes. even in month than previously. But even then they're kind of saying, but that's always been part of it. It's just more so the case now. So the, the digital folks are like, yeah, we don't have a very good 
view and like, you know, revenue outlook, it's everything's super hazy, but it's kind of always super hazy. It is. I think we're all just keeping things a little close to the vest longer than we usually do. And that's even from us in some cases, it's not necessarily us sitting on it. It could be clients sitting on it as well, because let's be clear, putting, spending more long-term takes a lot of pressure off of my teams as well. Doing all these short-term quick buys is a lot of pressure. Right. Yeah. I used to, you know, joke with folks about like the upfront like oh once the upfront you know deals are done is that like you're off until next march when you have to worry about the next deals but now there's just like the upfront deals don't seem to actually end like even in q4 there still seem to be talks about q4 upfront deals q1 upfront deals as opposed to looking ahead to next year's upfront deals absolutely everything's done with much shorter windows these days and so on that note, like how much of Q4 ad dollars are spoken for right now compared to like what would be normal? If we can remember whatever normal was. That seemed like a long time ago. Um, I think the majority of them are, by spoken for, what do you mean? Like committed? Yeah, like, you know, Netflix is getting this money. Um Google's getting this money. Uh, BuzzFeed, you know, the Times, Vox are getting this money. Most of the dollars are accounted for. And I think it's probably similar. They're just accounted for in places that have more flexibility. Yeah, that's, that's the name of the game. Yeah. But and most so, dollars are accounted for at this point. Okay. What does all of this mean for Netflix, considering they're coming into the market amid all this they just had their big presentation where they finally detailed what the ad product is like um it's pretty basic to start um they're not going to have a ton of inventory just given the ad load and then you know the lack of you know clarity in terms of how many people are actually going to sign up for the ad supported tier but what's been the uptake among clients it's so funny because I think, again, it's a little bit all over the map. Their client interest, the price is still high. There's not, the offering's fairly basic. Um, there are a couple of clients that feel they want to be there in fourth quarter for the launch. There are some that will want to take a wait and see approach um, just based off of how high the pricing is so far. Um, they're also looking for a decent amount to be firm, which doesn't, it's gone back to flexibility being a theme. Um, that's a challenge too. Yeah. What is it like $20 million firm? It varies on how you look at it by a holding company or if you look at it on an account level, there's some various, but they are looking to have a decent apportion firm. Got it. And is there, a, to what extent is there a fear of getting locked out as opposed to, uh, I can wait until next year I can get in during the upfront cycle? I don't think there's a huge fear of getting locked out. I think there's a little bit of FOMO of not being there in fourth quarter when it launches, but I don't think there's a fear of getting locked out per se. Um, because again, the price is high. It's not going to be for everyone. And I mean, I feel like that's... I mean, well, Netflix is at like a $65 CPM, so that's high even in the streaming standpoint. But I mean, Disney came out at a $50 CPM, if I remember right. I think when HBO Max initially came out two years ago now, it was like an $80 CPM. So like 
it feels like the line of streaming CPMs among these like premium streamers is just going higher. Like Hulu came up during this year's upfront. Peacock and HBO Max, I think, are trying to stick around that like mid 30s to 40 CPM. But it, and so like Netflix is high at 65, but it almost feels like the market's moving in a way like more towards Netflix than necessarily down to a $15, you know, free ad supported streaming TV CPM. They vary a lot. I think obviously the Netflix CPM has come down so far in negotiations, so it's not quite $65 anymore. Is it closer uh, to 50? In that range. Okay. Um, I can't say too much because we're still talking to them. But um, we've seen some of the pricing come down. Some has come up depending kind of on your starting point. Um, a lot of them ha- have been on the lower end. When they first started, they were competing with the YouTubes of the world. So their pricing was much more similar to that. Um, the ones that came out in the premium range have gone down over the last couple of years, a little bit each year. Um, so in, it's not that dissimilar of where Netflix is starting. It's kind of, they've all kind of aggregated in one of two places and Netflix is sticking out at this point still. Okay. And it was interesting, like, I think it was a year ago after the upfront, talking to some of the TV network executives that had their standalone streaming services that they were, were pitching and asking them like, you know, about our price. And they were just like, well, you know, we did rollbacks, rollbacks in some respects. It was, we brought down prices, you know, because we have more inventory. So we're able to get the volume there. Um, and, but there were some who were just like, we're also doing rollbacks because we know if we give a lower price now just to get people in the door, once they're in the door, those prices are going to go back up. Um, and eventually, like, we'll get the prices that we want. We just have to play that long game. Is there a long game from the buy side perspective? Or is that, okay, yeah, this is... Yeah, I think know, the long dynamics. game is it's market dynamics, supply, demand. And if supply continues to go up, it's hard to up the price. Yeah. So, and now we have increased competition with Disney Plus and Netflix in the market. So, right. it just and adds that- to that supply. Yeah. And that increased competition, it's like, it's interesting on the ad supported streaming side, it feels like the story in 2021 was we as advertisers kind of have to be everywhere because we don't have a sense on like who the winners and losers are. The audience seems to be everywhere. Is that still the case now? Or are you able to pick and choose better what the mix of the streamers would be? I think we can start to pick and choose a little bit because we have some data on what's working and not working. It's not necessarily consistent by client, but we have some at least information now because we've been in the space for a while. So we kind of know what's working and what's not working. We kind of, as we get more data, understand the duplication between the services and where I'm finding my consumers. It definitely makes us smarter in the space the longer the marketplace is there. Got it. What's working and not working? Um, again, it varies by client, but I think... We find that a lot of the streaming services deliver on a, on a on an ROI, but the pricing tends to still be a little high. So the price, the the return on investment isn't quite as good as some other channels, but it it's proven to be working. So where we can find those efficiencies and drive down that ROI is is working a little harder for us. Got it. Okay. 
I want to end by talking a bit about measurement because I can't help myself but talk to people about measurement. But it feels like measurement figures into this conversation where we're talking not just about the major TV network owners, but also the you know standalone streaming companies and then companies like YouTube and TikTok, where on the measurement side, a lot of that conversation's been on the traditional TV and you know companies, you know whether it's the VAB or NBCU or Discovery being like, we got to get away from Nielsen or at least get away from Nielsen being the only measurement option. Um, but then there's this also like, other conversation that I think is more interesting to me of not only diversifying, you know, beyond Nielsen as a measurement provider, but then diversifying what's getting measured beyond the traditional TV networks to include YouTube and TikTok. And it seems like there's a real conflict brewing between the folks, the traditional TV network owners being like, okay, we want to, you know, broaden measurement, but not so much that we open up to YouTube and TikTok because eh, we, we don't want to make it easy for money to move that way. And then buyers wanting things to open up to YouTube and TikTok for, I think, two main reasons. One, well, then you just get a more accurate read on your video dollars writ large from traditional TV all the way to digital video streaming and CTV in the middle. And then I also imagine like if you level the playing field like that, it makes the haggling process a lot easier because there's more competition for those dollars. How, to what extent is there a conflict, you know, brewing of to what extent do YouTube, TikTok, the digital video folks get to play and get supported by this measurement thing? Because it feels like Nielsen sees that conflict and why it has all these DAR deals that it's set up with Amazon for Thursday Night Football, YouTube, I mean, Roku and Hulu for years now, Netflix most recently. I think from my perspective, I definitely want as much cross-screen measurement as I can get. I think we as agencies are definitely pushing that agenda more so than the publishers, as you pointed out. Um, I think cross-screen measurement for us is important because we need to break down some of the silos and the wall gardens. Consumers don't consume media that way anymore. Um, if you look, YouTube's a decent portion, and I don't have the exact stat, of YouTube is consumed on a TV screen. Um, you know, the all of the channels have kind of blurred, and the cross-screen measurement's important to me to account for that that change in viewership and that change in consumption. It also... I think traditionally has has had an impact on demographics as well. So you'll see the consistency in measurement on TV versus some of the more fragmentations on other places. Is TV skews old? These you're young, so I'm having that disparate measurement between ages also, mm -hmm. which is a challenge. Um, so having one consistent source is important for us. I think the publishers aren't necessarily resistant as much as not embracing, hmm. if that makes some sense. I think they're, they're pushing it. They want to make sure that they're getting the value for their impressions as much as they can get the value for their impressions. That is their hmm. first order of business. They're just not focused on that cross screen as much. 
because their main focus is how can I make sure that I'm valuating every impression I have. Right. And it also seems like they want to make sure that their impressions can be valued more than impressions on YouTube, even if that were to mean, I mean, although the TV networks post clips on YouTube, but I don't think they necessarily want to like, I think they're willing to give away those impressions if it means there's kind of still this divide between how a streaming impression or, you know, an impression on Peacock or Paramount Plus can be evaluated versus an impression on YouTube, even if it's on, you know, the same device at the end of the day. Cause I think that's where the dam starts to break. Or it seems like that's could would be where the dam breaks. Yeah, to a degree, I think that's true. I think attention metrics come into play in some of these conversations. When you get do I get more attention in premium channels than I do less premium channels? Mm -hmm. Do we get into more of those metrics to help kind of delineate some of those conversations? Potentially. Um, I think attention metrics are super interesting for me um, because there's a lot of clutter and fragmentation out there. And if I know, if I can layer that on, I think that's something the more traditional media partners would support because there's the hypothesis that quality long form is going to have more attention than some of the more short form, um, more mobile devices. Theory, we'll see how it plays out as attention metrics get more. But I could see them embracing something like that to help even the playing field in their eyes. What are examples of attention metrics? Adelaide is one company that I know does attention metrics. There's a few, but really focuses in on how much attention is consumer paying, paying to the ad. So yes, I'm reaching 10 eyeballs, but only they've only paid attention for so long or for so, so, so many of the ads. Um, you know, if you look in a social channel and you're scrolling through a feed, are you really paying attention to the ads or is it just an impression counting? How much of that brand story or those brand metrics are you really taking away? Okay. And so is that based on like eye tracking studies that then get... Some of them projected? can be, yeah. Some of them. And I think we've seen a lot of, there's a lot of, there's an increased amount of companies coming out with attention type metrics. Adelaide's top of mind for me for some reason today. I'm not trying to give them a sales <laughs> pitch. I don't know for some reason they're the only one coming to mind at this particular second. Um, but I think we're seeing people focus in on that because we want to make sure that our ad dollars are being impactful at the end of the day. Yeah. Which makes sense. The the intention metrics thing is always kind of baffling to me because I'm just like, what's the basis for being able to like measure this attention? Like, you know, if, if I see an ad on my phone, like, well, should I be looking at the camera on my phone to figure out if they see me looking or kind of anytime I check any device, be holding my hand up in front of the camera? We've definitely done some studies with our lab that have shown different attention metrics from their perspective. And what they've seen, and a lot of that is eyeball tracking. Um, and some of it is just follow-up studies on what do you take away from this ad experience mm. um, and looking at ad recall it, in different channels. Surveys and panels, still oh. very much a part of the mix. Everyone loves a survey and a panel. Yeah, And I imagine that could be 
becoming more the case. I'm, I'm working my way towards like bringing up the the privacy side of things and like how advertisers are responding to privacy there because it feels like okay if you get a consented few as the basis that's going to be preferable to like assuming consent on the whole mm-hmm. and like cpra california privacy rights act takes effect in january um i don't think congress is going to be pass- passing a comprehensive federal privacy bill anytime soon that's that's kind of just a evergreen statement that is i think it would make things so much simpler but i don't think we're there right but it also feels like with the sephora fine i mean granted it Mm -hmm. was i think 1.2 million which bunch of money to me but you know for a big company you know maybe not like the hugest of fines but still it kind of shows oh there are consequences now, how has kind of this heightened privacy landscape worked its way into that 2023, you know, planning and, you know, clients' appetites heading into next year? <laughs> it's funny. I just, I spent a good hour on privacy this morning and talking about the Sephora mm. situation. I think... What was the conversation? It was specifically tied to pixels on websites. Um, and if clients are pixeling their website and how they're using that data. Uh, Cause that's really what the Sephora situation comes down to. Yeah. If you're trying to sell that data or how you're using that data, cause the term sell the data is very loose. Very if you're loose. using, <laughs> so um, I think some people are taking that term sell very literally. And I think the Sephora case proved that's not the case. It's a very loose interpretation of the word sell. Um, and how we want to approach that with some clients is in just making sure that they're aware of that nuance. It was kind of my conversation this morning, but it's certainly a factor. I don't think clients lean in again. It goes back to, I think certain clients lean in a lot more than others. I think the more, depending on your category, you kind of have to lean in more than others. So I think we see you know, the financial category lean in pretty heavily, um, health sites, but a lot of those are also somewhat reliant because they're governed by a whole set of criteria on the privacy front already. Are they, we worry a little bit, are they taking too much for granted that they're covered by their HIPAA compliance or their financial requirements and are they not paying attention to some of the privacy laws that go beyond some of that? Um, it's it's so complex. I I really a federal law would definitely make things easier. Um, yeah. yeah. Although but, then even then, there's still the well. How does that federal law square square with GDPR and all these different countries' privacy mm-hmm. laws? And also, like, I mean the issue with the federal law or one of the big ones, you know, how does that square with state laws like California? What gets preemption? It does. Um, It's going to be complex for a while, which is, I, you know, thank God I have a chief privacy officer (laughs) because she kind of boils it down to me for, you know, privacy for dummies, uh, which I thank her for every day. (laughs) And like, Broadly speaking, as you mentioned, it can think everything can vary client by client. But do you expect the trend to be towards 
clients taking a more conservative approach to something like the definition of sale than they had in the past? Because I mean, have, a lot of folks took a very loose definition of sale. I you know did a story in February 2020. So what was that? Three lifetimes ago about how there are a lot of publishers that took a loose interpretation of definition of sale. And now it seems like the, what is the saying? The chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. Um, I think eventually, I don't think right out of the gate, I think everyone's going to, I think we'll see some people, I think Sephora will open a few eyes to reevaluate how quickly people act, I think is not going to be as quick as we would all like. <laughs> Which I'm sure is a shock to no one listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, before I let you go, we mentioned like no one has a great like view of things like even in Q4 looking ahead to you know 2023. But for you, are there any canaries in the coal mine that you keep an eye on at, to kind of like help you figure out, OK, how are things actually playing out? Nothing I could think of come, that comes to mind off the top of my head, I think. I really just think that we're going to see the first half of 2023 look a lot like fourth quarter. I think there's going to be very conservative approach to media spend and a still a focus on those lower funnel metrics, at least in the short term. Yeah. I imagine like to the average person here and oh, the first half of a year is going to be like a fourth quarter. That sounds great. Sign me up. <laughs> Right, leave it there. Stacy Stewart, thanks Thank so you. much for coming on the show. Always enjoy speaking with Thank you. Thank you. You too. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode. 